You are now listening to Deep Dives with Father Sean O'Brien, the Super Catholic Catechesis Podcast. Hello again, friends, to another round of Deep Dives with Father Sean, the Super Catholic Catechesis Podcast. This is inspired by the Catechism's reminder that times of renewal in the Church are also intense moments of catechesis. That's what we got here for you today. So this is a part seven of our simple teachings of the revealed God. You know, the fascinating thing is that, you know, there's simple teachings of the real God, the revealed God, uh, but at the same hand, not all the teachings of the revealed God uh, were originally so simple, and there had to be a real fight to clarify that. It's kind of what we're going to get into today. Uh, so it's kind of a fascinating story, and I, I think it's really worthwhile just to give you uh, a little bit of an example before we can hit the ground running here. Think of spouses. Think of spouses. You know, if one spouse um, is getting picked on, the other spouse is going to be like, no, don't do this. This is my wife. This is my wife. You do not mess with my wife. I am going to defend her. I will protect her. And you don't want to pay those consequences. You don't want to suffer that. So so back off, bro. And the husband will step forward and do what he needs to protect her. This is the the desire of that bride, right? And so this is what we, we have here. That we have the church who steps forward to defend her precious love, her precious passion, her, her Lord. Amid all of these false ideas that are floating about, we still have false ideas today. Um, in some way, they are not new. They're just kind of packaged up from past times. But in other ways, they, they have their newness to them. But we're going to take a step into the back. Last week, we talked about the logos and what that means for us. And this is kind of a... it would This necessarily comes after that because Jesus being the logos... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came to be through Him, and the Word became flesh. So all these different realities there are, you know, how the heck does that work? You know, I guess that's the big question. How in the world does that work? And so the theologians of that time were trying to get into that and make some declarations of what they can or cannot know. And so we see doctrine or teaching proposed and claimed to be necessary for true faith. And we also see some doctrine or teaching that is opposed, that is condemned, anathema. And this is to to steer those of the true faith aware, away from, from errors. It doesn't do any good to live in error. And if it is around the one whom we love above all things, that might even be insulting to 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 choose to believe in error about the one that we love above all that is more than insulting that's just like spitting in the face that's what we're going to avoid here so one of the things i hope for is you get a sense of the story you get a taste a flavor of of what the church actually is uh, get a sense of what this revelation is you know it's really given to us it's really in our hands but it's not always so digestible and what we are able to believe today in so such great clarity that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, truly united with God, and yet totally incarnate. He is 
one divine person, but two natures, father, excuse me, the two natures, divine nature and human nature, which are not mingling. They're not, uh, they're not, uh, combining. That is to say, kind of like water and flour would combine into dough. It's not like that. They are distinct. They are, they remain integral in and of themselves, but they are connected in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we're kind of going to end, but I'm really hoping that you just get a flavor. You don't have to, you know, really the most important part is just getting to the conclusion there. That's the part that you need to remember. But, but again, just to savor the story, to get a sense of history that God continues to reveal himself through the ministry of the church and the Holy Spirit's presence. Uh, also, I'm introducing the idea of councils, the church's councils, so and all, as well as papal infallibility, because we get the what I would suppose to be the first instance of infallibility of the Pope. Even though it's not defined, it certainly acted as it is meant to be. <laughs> so even though it's like 450 years after Jesus, but it's still super profound, super profound. Very good. So let's hop right on in here with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we love and adore you. You are so good to give us your Son, a being who we cannot understand, though we certainly do understand him. We don't understand him fully, but we're thankful for being able to truly know him, even if it's partially. Help us to love him and, and appreciate him more. Help us to, to dialogue more with him, to pray more, to to learn about him more, our true love. Come Holy Spirit, help us to have open hearts, open minds. My my hearts be, oh, my, my, may my lips be open to the truth today. We ask this through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So we talked about the origins of the Trinity a couple times ago. We talked about the logos just this past time. Uh, these are very clearly established the Trinity, the great prayer of the commission to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and as well as all these other different different events uh, in the life of Jesus where you see the Father, or maybe even hear the Father, and the Holy Spirit is uniquely present there over the Son, and you see that, that inter just the unity, the unity of those three realities that we now know as persons of the Godhead. So, the one of the risks that all these people step into is that they try to interpret the teachings of Revelation or the facts of Revelation through common sense. You can't do that. This is not common sense. It may have a true sense to it. But it's not common. It's it's a divine sense to it. Uh, it's theology is always assessing and, and and receiving revelation. God Himself lets Himself be known to us. He communicates Himself to us. And our job is, like I mentioned last time, is to be hearers of that word, to receive that, and not try to put our own spin on it. Especially when we do it through common sense. Um, you know, the church is always going to have its. It's issues. Back then, it was these extremes between Jesus is totally God versus Jesus is totally man. While in reality, it's both. But at the same hand, there's also nuance to that because it's not quite 
as simple because even as we're going to see when we say it's both we might <laughs> say it's both he's both in the wrong way so we have to avoid common sense and we have to look to divine wisdom we have to look to our inheritance the, the what the church has faithfully passed down from generation to generation and we get a sense of that in the story again i hope that you savor this awesome story you know we're going to be walking through oh less than 200 years but still a good little while well no i yeah less than 200 years but it's it's so crazy so there they are they never had any council in the sense of the bishops coming together and but then came the need then came the need there were other false teachings that were floating about but none of them were quite as serious as this or as confusing as this or as political as this so a little bit of the background here is constantine the emperor of the roman empire he decides that rome is kind of tanking as a city and he's going to go to a more of a metropolitan Place. And so he goes to the north of what we now know to be Turkey. Kind of strange to think of the Roman emperor being in Turkey, but he did do that. That's where he went. He went to the north of that, to the edge of the Black Sea, and he found a place and he built his own city. Constantine built the city of Constantinople. And so that became the headquarters of the empire. Um, but at the same hand, Rome still held a lot of significance. So it was kind of like the, the empire itself was dividing into two, the east and the west. East being centered on Constantinople, west being centered on Rome. There's distance problems, and this is how the, the empire ultimately begins to kind of crumble. Though, however, in the east, this, this Roman empire that is based in Constantinople it slowly kind of evolves into its own form of empire, which is frequently known as the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantine world over there, which is why we now have the Byzantine Rite Catholics. Those are Catholics who have adopted, not adopted, but who have received the universal inheritance through the particular flavor of that more Greek tradition. Anyways, that's a lot of background, but that's kind of essential background. And the, there's great heroes at this time. We're going to see some of these profound heroes, and there's more stories that are worth telling that I don't have time to tell. One of the unheroes, a man very infamous, is Arius. He is most famously associated with the heresy called Arianism. Poor guy, got his name attached to something he didn't want to be attached with. And this is what's going on. So, Arius, you know, he was trying to understand what's going on about this person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the person of Jesus is the Logos. Very nice. Uh, or maybe maybe he's not focused so much on the Logos, but he's thinking about Jesus as the Son. And Jesus as the Son. And we've talked about that extensively. That's the primary way that Jesus reveals himself. So, this is what Arius picks up. And he uses common sense. And he thinks... All sons have a beginning. Therefore, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then he must have a beginning. Jesus Christ was not always with God. Only God can be there. On one hand, this could be a very conservative position. We come from a background, a Jewish background, that says there can only be one God. 
one God. Don't just be saying there's two gods. We only believe in one God. And they're trying to hold fast to an ancient tradition. But they don't have the flexibility to adapt to the truth of the matter. So he errs on that. He he. There's different renditions of Arianism. Some would say that the the son became or jesus became the son of god at the incarnation another rendition would say that jesus became the son of god at his baptism where the voice of the father came and said this is my my son listen to him and his association with the logos was much more nuanced that jesus as the logos was more of his humanity being lifted up into the logos of the Father, the, the the sense of the Father. And he became logos in time, not through his essence of being God. So, the Son had generation in time. And therefore, he is essentially dissimilar from the Father. The Father has divine nature. The Son does not have divine nature. Though he might have some nature that is similar to God. I think there are even some renditions of this heresy that would have uh, some kind of presence of the Son before or at the moment of creation. It's it's not, I, like I said, there's a lot of different renditions of this. So, a man comes forth, a young man. His name is Athanasius, Athanasius of Alexandria, living not too far from where uh, Arius is, is living. Athanasius was a young, holy genius, uh, just really, really incredible. The patriarch, was fancy word for bishop, um, given to one, uh, the bishop of a larger, more significant diocese or seat. Uh, and that would be Alexandria. Alexandria was one of the huge cities and one of the most cultured cities in that Mediterranean Roman Greek world. And one day the patriarch sees this boy playing with other boys, and the the lead boy is they're playing they're playing church. They're playing church. I don't know if you ever heard of a kid playing mass before. This is what Athanasius was doing. And he was taking water, and he was having the boys come forward. He says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Next, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Next. And the patriarch was like, whoa, stop, 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 stop. You're actually baptizing those boys. Uh, They need some preparation first. You can't just do this, okay? But... You're pretty awesome because I love your faith and you got to come and hang out with me a lot and I'm going to show you who Jesus is and I will open up scriptures to you and provide for your education. So from an early age, he was being uh, educated in the sacred sciences, that is to say philosophy and theology with a heavy emphasis on scripture as a source of theology. So he's serving as the assistant to the bishop. And in 323, the bishop, the patriarch, excommunicates Arius. He says, Arius, you're wrong. Stop talking like that. You gotta you gotta leave that behind. You're not leaving it behind? Okay, well, in order to prove, in order to defend the truth of who Jesus is, 
you're gone. You're excommunicated. I, I gave the opportunity of repentance. And in fact, the opportunity of repentance is still there. And this excommunication is, is a, a statement of saying, my son, you have wandered away. Please come back. We want you. But we don't want you with this terrible attitude. Now, a problem arises because Arius had friends. He had big friends, both in the church and in the empire. And so he leaves this region and he goes further north, closer to Constantinople. He's he's talking with people. He's recruiting more friends. He's a pretty sharp PR guy. And the emperor gets disturbed. He's causing a great division. And the emperor's like, oh, no, come on. You know, the church was a big help in growing in unity. And now... It's going backwards. What are y'all doing? Come on, get on the same page. So he decides that he's going to help the church get back on the same page. So as he's noting, noticing the division in the church's teaching and the animosity and the hurt that's coming out of that, he says, all right, we're, we're getting everyone together. Bishops from across the world, y'all are coming and you're going to have a big old council and hash this out. And so... Interestingly enough, the the Roman Empire, who was in Constantinople, gathered the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical means of the whole house. Uh, ecumen, ecumen, that kind of comes from the word oikoinos, uh, uh, I guess is the, the Greek word. It comes from this household, this, this idea of a household. And so the, the leaders of the household are coming together. They're going to hash it out. They don't come together in Constantinople. There's a little town outside of Constantinople called Nicaea. So we call the Council the Council of Nicaea. It's the first in year 325. And there's 318 bishops who are present, primarily from the east. You know, it's fascinating because of the difficulty of travel and because of the political gap in Rome. Uh, the the Pope really doesn't go to these councils. However, he does send representatives, and these representatives, or the Pope himself in some way or another, gives approval to the conclusions of the council, and that is what gives the council its binding... The Holy Spirit is what gives it its binding um, nature, that what is proclaimed is to be followed universally, but it's the Pope who kind of seals that and confirms that the Holy Spirit was there and brings it forth to be proclaimed as universal fact and discipline. So Athanasius, he goes there, but again, he's the assistant to the bishop. He's only a deacon at this point, 27 years old, um, but he just has a great a great leadership role in this because he is so brilliant, so brilliant. And it's just really, really incredible. So, they're trying to hash this out. Okay, we don't really, you know, what's Arius saying? It doesn't seem right, but why is it not right? How do we, how do we do this? And, you know, think about that because there's, in Rome, the primary language is Latin. In Constantinople in the East, the primary language is in Greek. They're very specific intellectual languages. They can be very, very precise but you know, there's you can get lost in translation sometimes. There's also just confusing terms that one person might interpret one way and another person might interpret totally other way. And so you even see some of these these uh, even saints, even the primary leaders of these councils, 
say things in one place that seem to contradict what they say elsewhere. And that's because of the terms are not clarified yet. Uh, think of the terms of nature, of substance, of person, essence. Yeah, they kind of mean all the same thing, but they but they must necessarily be distinguished. Otherwise, they're going to be repeating each other, but meaning something different. So they're trying to hash it out. Uh, the results of this is that they decide to use the word homoousius. I'm really not going to kill you with all these fancy words, but homoousius. And that means the same substance, that Jesus Christ is the same substance of the Father. And if you remember what Arius was saying, that Jesus was not the same substance of the Father. Jesus somehow came after the Father's eternal being and therefore was not of the same substance from all eternity. And the bishops at the Council of Nicaea said, uh, Arius, you're wrong. He is the same substance. And so they adopted some of these words that I mentioned last time. Light from light. True God from true God. By whom all things were made. So light from light, true God from true God is to distinguish that he has the nature of the Father, but he is also alongside the Father. There's some kind of distinction there. They don't really spell it out, um, which leaves the door open for more controversy. They also have a number of condemnations. They're, they're really trying to make the doctrine clear, and so they, they specify a few things So for that are negative. They say, we must believe this, but we also must not believe these things. These are anathema. Uh, and this would be the view that there was once when he was not. This was rejected to maintain the co-eternity of the Son with the Father. Also, they condemned the view that he was mutable or subject to change in his eternal reality as, as Son. Uh, that's not right either. So, they had to condemn that. Now... How was this received? This is what was declared that Jesus was of the same substance of the Father. How was it received? It was not received well, just to put it plainly. Constantine received it positively. He's like, okay, thanks for figuring this out. We got it hashed out. Very nice. Good. Arius, yeah, nice try. Now, the next emperor and the next emperor were both adherents to the Arian heresy. This created profound problems because they, they, the Church of the East began to then meddle too much into politics. And really, in the East, um, it's still a significant problem. People would even say it's a problem in other places, too. But it's not nearly like it is in the East. It's, it's kind of ugly um, in different ways, in different churches, um, different locations. But, but it's still present there. I think of like the Russian Orthodox Church. It's just like, ooh, y'all are... Y'all are in bed with the wrong government here. This is this is just getting ugly. So, Constantine received it well. The following two emperors did not receive it well. That created problems for Athanasius at the council. He was a young man, but with these other two Arian emperors, he wasn't quite so young. He was condemned by them. Um, he was condemned by two different heretical councils, kind of these, these offshoots, these uh, rogue bishops getting together and condemning all these miscellaneous people. And it really held incredible power because it had the ear of the emperor. And so not only was he condemned, but he was also exiled. And not only once, he was exiled five times. Um, 
he went out into the desert because of that, and he spent extensive time with St. Anthony of the desert, a profound, profound saint from the early church, and St. Athanasius was able to write a biography on St. Anthony, which I recommend for all. It's probably the most simple thing that Athanasius wrote, just because it was a story, uh, but really great, profound wisdom. St. Jerome was living around this time, and he observes that this is a really profound statement that there was such a, a radical change and it happened so fast. This is how he describes it. All the Christians of the world went to bed sound Trinitarians. That is to say, firm believers in three persons in one God. Sound Trinitarians and rose full-fledged Arians. It just was so fast. It was so fast. And Athanasius was a true hero of orthodox orthodoxy. That is to say, the word ortho means correct or right, and doxy means uh, means a number of different things. But here, practically, it means teaching. So the true teaching, the correct teaching. He is a bastion of orthodoxy versus heterodoxy, which means other teachings, other beliefs. So that's why we know Athanasius, who persevered through his suffering, through his persecution, through his exiles. We know him as Athanasius, contramundo, against the world. He's also known as, quote, pillar of the church, pillar of the church. Now, during this time, there's a sad note that is something to be noted and mentioned, but it's kind of sad, uh, even though it ends more positively. There is a pope. His name is Pope Liberius. And he is the first pope to not be recognized as a saint. Kind of a sad reality there. He was seized by the Arian emperor Constantius. Different than Constantine, Constantius. He was exiled. He was threatened to, to death. And during two years of imprisonment, he was forced to sign a compromise formula. That compromise formula between the true belief and the false belief. And so as he as he tried as he was forced to compromise, he, he sold the true faith. Yeah, you don't do that. That doesn't win you any bonus points in heaven as you throw Jesus under the bus. He was released, and then he publicly condemned this compromise formula. So that's the more positive side, but, but he bent under that pressure. So up to this point, to summarize, we have concluded that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, who is God. Jesus Christ has the divinity. He is the same substance as the Father. Now, the next question, okay, we got established... Jesus is totally God. What about his humanity? Is he really truly man? Now, you think of Athanasius, a bastion of, of orthodoxy, true pillar of the church. Well, one of his friends was Apollinaris. Apollinaris. And he tried to take the common sense view. Like, okay, God is... Jesus is God. He's got this divinity to him. And he, it's clear he's got a body, but if if there's a rational part of Jesus, 
it must be the God part. Therefore, Jesus does not have a human soul. He does not have a human soul. He's not truly living. Jesus has a visible part, his body, that's a human body, but the, the more rational side of him, the soul, that can't be human because, because God would, would take that over. Well, he maintained that he was consubstantial with God, but he held on, to, he tried to explain that too much, and he would say that he is not consubstantial of the same substance with mankind, not wholly, because he does not have human will and he does not have human intellect. Uh, Pope Damasus, on the other hand, says that, no, Jesus has all of the human nature. You should realize that. Apollinaris did not submit, though, and he broke with the church. He, he entered into his own condemnation. He entered into heresy. And so, again, the emperor's like, y'all are messing it up again. Uh, this is Constantius. And so, the as he intervened, no, it's not Constantius. I don't remember who the emperor was. As he con he convened the bishops together again for a new council. This is the second council in the church. This time it was not at Nicaea. This time it was at Constantinople. The first council was at 325, and now we're at 381. So just over 50 years later, uh, 56 years later, 186 bishops are participating in this. This time, not only are they mostly from the East, they're all from the East. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? No, none from France, none from Rome. It's just those from the East, those from the East. And you can imagine how this is starting to rub the East and the West in the wrong way. And they're starting to have a little tension there. There are a hundred, excuse me, there were 36 bishops who arrived who were Arians. And in order for them to enter into the council conversations, they were required to sign an allegiance to the the Council of Nicaea. These 36 were unable to do so, and so they were refused entrance. Isn't that amazing? They were refused entrance. Um, because it's like, oh, okay, so let's get on the same page here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Y'all are heretics. Is that correct? I'm like, oh, we're not heretics. Okay, well, then sign here. Uh, I don't know about that. It's like, okay, well, um, this is a council of bishops who are adhering to the true faith. And as you're declaring yourself to be not of the true faith, well, you can't participate. You can't participate. It just doesn't make sense. So that's the the gathering there. That's kind of the external reality there in Constantinople. There's some big saints who show up here, some big saints. There's Basil the Great and his brother, St. Gregory of Nyssa. They're brothers, they're saints. They come from a family of saints. I think the mom and a sister are proclaimed or canonized saints, or at least proclaimed saints, probably better terminology for back then. Um, Basil was also a friend of Apollinaris, but it just... Apollinaris was just going in his own direction. Uh, there, at this time, there was also Gregory of Nazianzen, who would ultimately become the, the bishop of Constantinople, the patriarch of Constantinople. And he he kind of gives a key key conclusion. He draws this from Athanasius, and he says, "What was not assumed was not redeemed." Talking about Jesus, the eternal Son of God assumed humanity. And therefore, he redeemed humanity. If God did not assume humanity, take humanity to himself and really become it, then humanity would not be saved. If 
Jesus only assumed a part of humanity, well, only that part would be the say would be saved and redeemed, and the other part would not be. And therefore, if we are to claim that all of humanity is redeemed, then we have to declare that all of humanity was was assumed by the Son of God. You know, there's there's different complications here. I don't know if I want to call them political, but, you know, the, the Aryans are trying to play their game. I would say that when the church becomes political and people are trying to um, position themselves for X, Y, and Z, then they're doing so in order for an agenda to triumph, as was the case here. There was an illegal consecration of a man named Maximus in Constantinople. So at this council here, they deposed him. They elected a new patriarch of Constantinople. His name was Gregory. Um, <laughs> even though th this was originally opposed by Rome and Alexandria, it, it eventually got got um, was was received. However, he was just not popular. No one really liked him. And I don't know all the details on that. There's a lot of details in this history. And so he looked at the church and he's like, I am not the right guy here. <laughs> I don't know how this happened. I didn't really want this. And I still don't want it. And it looks like the church is going to be better off without me. And so he says this quote, really beautiful as he's resigning. Let me be as the prophet Jonah. If you remember, he tried to escape in the boat and escape God's doing God's will and was thrown into the sea to restore uh, the balance of God's will, if you will. Let me be as the prophet Jonah. I was responsible for the storm, but I would sacrifice myself for the salvation of the ship. Seize me and throw me. So, interesting little side story there. Uh, that's when they elected Gregory of Nazianzen. Now, at this Council of Constantinople, they developed on the Nicene Creed. They, they held fast to the teachings that were there, but they also needed to clarify things about the humanity of Jesus. So they added to the creed that was established at Nicaea. You know, we, we pray the Nicene Creed at, in the Rosary, but we also do the Constantinople Creed at Mass because it's more full. It's what we have received. And so this was added that Jesus was born of the virgin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and by these two things it's highlighting his humanity. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He Jesus Christ he's the Lord of the living and the dead. And so he's highlighting or they're highlighting his divinity. And then they have also a comment on the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And so his human, his excuse me, the Holy Spirit's divinity was accentuated here and clarified. So in some ways, it's not like a hard-hitting council. It just kind of reaffirms some of these things that the church believed in. But you have these weird people going other directions, and they needed to clarify in order to defend their love, their life, their Savior Jesus Christ, uh, to defend who He truly is. And then there's practical things as well, because they're always addressing different disciplinarian realities, like, oh, a bishop needs to be in his place, and the bishop can't be moved here and there, or, um, you know, this needs to happen, that needs to happen. So there's some practical conclusions, but we are omitting those. Now, another guy came comes forward. I mean, just the confusion continues and continues and continues. His name is Nestorius. Yeah, you know, he had a devotion to Mary. You know, they had a devotion to Mary back then. 
but he really was hesitant about how much of a devotion he was truly going to have. And so he was really avoiding that word theotokos, which is the fancy word for a God bearer. Sometimes you'll hear the word theotokos. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, mm, a, a victorious term for Mary. She is the theotokos and she's the one, she's the God bearer. It's, it's pretty much the highest title you can give to Mary, the mother of God. So high that we have a, a feast day on the calendar that is a day of obligation. Anyone remember what that day is? It's a holy day of obligation dedicated to the Theotokos, the Mary, mother of God. And it's January the 1st. January the 1st. Very good. Now, the you know, this is kind of a, a common... You know, again, they're trying to bring common sense into this. How can Jesus, being, being, you know, man as we recognize, how can he also not be a sinner and inherit what happened there? And so they're kind of trying to pull this humanity away from this divinity and recognizing that he falls into the the sinfulness of humanity. And that's just like, oof, you can't really do that. And so as they do this, they're saying that, yeah, Jesus, he came from a tradition of sin because he was born of a human. We know that original sin was passed down through, through birthing new humans. And this is what happened with Jesus. Therefore, can we really say his humanity is totally united with God? That seems kind of crazy. Okay, he's he's got God in there somehow. He's also got this humanity, but his humanity is there's something wrong with his humanity. And therefore, Mary, did she really give birth to God? Yeah, probably not. We'll say that she gave birth to Christ. So instead of Theotokos, the God bearer, she in Nestorius's language is known as the Christotokos. Christotokos, the Christ bearer. So they'll say, just in a nutshell, Mary did not give birth to the Logos, just to the human side of Jesus. There is no true union with the humanity of Christ and the divine side of Christ. On one hand, this makes sense, because you can't like say that she gave birth to an eternal nature. Like, what the heck does that mean? So there's more confusion. He's saying that he's still human. He's still saying that he's God, but he's saying that they're they're far enough separated that you really can't call Mary the Theotokos, the God-bearer. Now we have another saint who steps into this. Saint Cyril of Alexandria. He is given authority from the Pope to proclaim judgment, to proclaim sentence on Nestorius, to say that he's wrong. Nestorius knew it was coming, and so what does he do? Well, he flies like a little baby to his his little daddy, the emperor, and this is what we get. We get another council in 431, uh, so this is 50 years exactly after the Council of Constantinople, 431, the third ecumenical council, council of the household, if you will. There they are. Um, there's drama, there's people showing up late. And by the time they show up late, you know, things are already done. It's kind of how these things go. It's kind of all, <laughs> each story, each of these councils have their dramas. I forgot to mention the first council, St. Nicholas, you know, Santa Claus. Well, he got so angry at Arius. He got so frustrated that he went up there and punched him. This was not a good thing. And, you know, don't punch heretics. Don't punch people you hate. Uh, he had to 
have a punishment because of that. <laughs> so he got put in jail and the story goes on. He has some kind of vision of Peter. I forget the details, but it's, but it's super interesting. So there they are at the Council of Ephesus. There's drama involved, but they come to deeper clarity again. And so we, this is a quote, by uniting to himself in his person, a body animated by a rational soul, the word has become man in an inexpressible and incomprehensible way. So here we have a new word that's introduced here, not introduced, but, but accepted for common usage. Person, person, the person or the word, the eternal person of the Son of God, of the Word of God, unites to himself, takes to himself, assumes to himself a body, human body, animated by a rational human soul. And so the word has become in an inexpressible and incomprehensible way. We can't really understand it, but we can we can declare what it is and what it's not. And this is this is what it is. So that's the benefit from the Council of Ephesus. So now we get a sense of there is a person, there's a divine person, and he totally takes to himself human nature while he has already had divine nature. And therefore, Mary gives birth, not to the divine nature, but she does give birth to the divine person who is integrally united with the human nature. If she gives birth to the human nature, that human nature is is intrinsically united with the divine person. Therefore, she gives birth to the divine person of the word, to the, of the logos. Clarity. That's the clarity there. Next person. Next error. Here we go. His name is Eutychus. Eutychus. Um, you know, his common sense position is saying, you know, well, I guess there's one person. Therefore, there's got to be one nature. I mean, what the heck does it mean to have one person but two natures? That doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, I guess he's he got this divinity side. Yeah, he's, he's got this humanity side. And uh, therefore, there, there's got to be some kind of just one nature involved because that's the only thing I can recognize. It's common sense. One person has one nature. But you can't interpret Jesus Christ through common sense. That was his error. This is all their errors. You can't interpret Jesus Christ through common sense. You have to be hearers of the word. You have to receive this revelation. And he just doesn't receive it. So, he wrote to Rome. He wrote to Rome for some clarity, for support. The Pope at that time was Leo. Leo, he waited to hear the other side. So, he... Um, was dialoguing with another person at the time whose, whose name was Flavian. So he's hearing Eutychus' side, he's hearing Flavian's side, and he you know, was talking with, I'm sure, his, at that time, the cardinals of Rome, these deacon assistants. I don't think they were priests at the time. I think they were still deacons. And he comes up with a letter. It's called there's a fancy word for letter, it's a tome. The letter of Leo, the tome of Leo. And this is where we find the first clear usage of papal infallibility. He addresses it to everyone. It's about a matter of faith and morals, faith more specifically at this moment. And he's doing so as the Pope, as the successor of Peter. He does it in a time of controversy, and he brings great clarity to the controversy. So in this dogmatic letter, in this teaching, he, he clarifies one person, 
two natures. They're not mixed. They're not mingle. They are separate. They're distinct. But they're totally united in the person of Jesus. There are two natures of Jesus Christ. Now, there was a robber council, a false council. The Pope did not want it, but the emperor did. The Pope said, okay, you know what? I will accept this this council if you do two things. One, if you let me send representatives to it. And two, if you read this letter in it. They did not. (laughs) And so Leo excommunicated all of them. Isn't that amazing? It's just like, boom. Leo was a defender of the faith. You know, there are some strong defenders of the faith in the early church. They they loved Jesus Christ so much that they were not going to put up with any silly business. And, And they just, they did not. They did not. So later on, so that was in the year 449, two years later in the year 451, the emperor puts together again a council. This time it's in the town of Chalcedon. I think this is also up around Constantinople. And they come up, this is kind of where everything is brought into synthesis and clarity. And the definition of the hypostatic union is is given hypostatic union is the union of the hypostases the which is the fancy word for the substance or the person of god (laughs) of jesus excuse me not of god so it's the person personal the union and the person is probably the best way to put it the hypostatic union is the person the person ish person person-based union that's maybe a better translation a person-based union there's two natures in one person true god from true man no commingling no change no division no separation one person son of god one person logos two natures and boom there's confusion about this later on but the heresies around this are really just the same old heresies wrapped up in in different (laughs) disguises. Um, Not to say there's other categories of heresies. There certainly are, but these are some some of the big ones that are focused on Jesus Christ. So that was a stinking lot. But the story is so fascinating. You know, the simple teaching is that Jesus is two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, perfectly united in the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ has these two natures. They're not mixed. They're not mingling. They're not divided. They're not separated. In fact, they're they're perfectly united, but not directly to each other. They're united in the person of Jesus. That's the simple teaching. There's a long path to get there. Fascinating, crazy stories of saints and sinners, of heroes and of big-time losers and enemies of the church, really. Enemies of Jesus Christ because they, they're not humble. They don't give themselves to the inheritance that they have received. Well, brothers and sisters, thanks for following me through this presentation here. It's a long one here. May the Lord bless you for your perseverance. And please pray for me. May God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hallelujah. Adios. To find out more about this podcast, you can find it online on your favorite streaming platform now.